Today's Bible reading is from Luke 24, verse 1 to 8, and then to verse 36 to verse 39. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And then starting from verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Hello everyone. It's good to be uh, with you again if you were here on Friday. If not, uh, welcome to you, uh, and it's great to be with you. I'm uh, stepping in for Scott, who's in ISO this weekend, uh, which is which is my privilege, and it's been uh, my my privilege to be able to go back and look at all the things about the death and resurrection of Jesus again, to be able to share with you and for us to reflect on them over this Easter weekend. And so we did that on Friday when we looked at the death of Jesus, uh, and then today we're going to look at the resurrection. Quite obviously, right? We're going to spend some time thinking about. How could this thing be true? And how does it impact us? So wherever you're at with, with God, whatever you uh, think of him, uh, our hope today is that we can consider uh, that Jesus uh, actually is the one that gives life as we consider what he did uh, in his death and resurrection. So let me pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, come together uh, this morning and consider the most extraordinary moment in human history where you sent your son to become flesh, die for us and conquer death by rising again. Help us by your spirit to understand it afresh, to renew us and maybe even challenge us for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we did on Friday is we thought about, is this whole thing just a big hoax? Is Jesus' death a hoax? But 
even more so, is his resurrection. If he did die, we, in, okay, let's just now say that he did. We, we dealt with that on, fr- on Friday. But a resurrection, really? Is it just a prank? And on, on Friday, I, I gave you my favorite prank. And a lot of you said to me, you liked pranks and, and you liked doing it. So I thought I'd give you a bit of advice on how to do some pranks. Here are some of the, your greatest hits that you can do if you would like to get in on the pranking. Um, you can put a massive doorknob, a massive horn on the back of a doorknob. And as, as someone walks through and closes it, you can, you know, absolutely take their ears out. I don't want my kids to watch any of this, by the way. Don't, I don't want any of that happening. You got the, the next one here. Now, this is the worst thing you could possibly do, right? You get a, get a fake snake and you go to the supermarket and you put it in amongst the fruit. If you do that to me, you'll break me because I, I think snakes are, you know, eat the serpent in Genesis 1 for a reason. I can't stand snakes. That would be an awful prank. Uh, the next prank is here. You might not be able to read what that says, but instead of just using air freshener, why don't you replace the can with shrimp spray? And spray that all around. That'd be a good prank to do if you want to get on board with that. And then, uh, now that is a lot of effort. Can you see what's happened there for that prank? That is, uh, a whole bunch of water. Some kids who I imagine got suspended pretty badly after doing this. They, uh, put the water in every single one of those cups. And so when people walk down the hall, it's going to cause chaos. That's another, another, another prank that you can do. And then my favorite, a Chewbacca Raw contest. Get someone's mobile phone number, put it up there, and tell everyone on a big notice board, you make the loudest Chewbacca noise you can make, and everyone, and then the person's mobile phone would uh, get that, that prank. That's a, that's a, that's kind of almost sound. That's right. So you've got here, you've got here, um, a whole bunch of different pranks. I'm sure you've done them. I'm sure you've hated them. I'm sure you've been involved in them. But there's a thing with every single prank that happens. There's a thing that with every single prank, at one moment, there's the realization that it's not real. There's a moment where there's the gotcha moment, or there's a moment when you think, hang on a minute, someone's having me on here. And I think that's the question that our world, many people are asking, and the question that we need to ask is, Is that moment about the resurrection of Jesus yet to come? Is it possible that the moment when we realize, hang on a minute, this is just all made up, this is just one big prank, is actually the reality that we face with the resurrection? And I want to suggest to you today that as we look at it, there's very good reasons to think that it is not like that at all. It isn't like that moment in a prank where we just haven't got there yet and realized, ah, this is just all made up. But there's very good reasons to think about why it is real. So, what are we going, what are we going to think about? Well, if we're going to think about this, we really need to consider why do people actually think it's not real? Why could this not, not have happened? Well, in the first case, it's kind of extraordinary, isn't it? It's kind of extraordinary. We're talking about someone coming back alive and not just coming back alive to reign and live forever. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you hear that and go, of course, yeah, that makes sense to me because that, you've already made that decision. But if you just step out of that for a moment, just think, that does seem a little odd in a world that's ordered and structured. So what evidence do we have for that? And so on Friday, we talked about the four kind of questions. And whenever you question the Bible and question the things of God, they're often these kinds of questions. And on the screen there, you can see the four things there. That can it be verified? Can it actually be accurate? Is it timely? 
And can it be attested accurately? These four things um, we pushed into on Friday, we're going to do again today as we think about this resurrection. Because if it can't be verified, the only way we can believe in it, if we can't be super confident in it, the only way we can believe in this resurrection is by just having a faith that is, I believe it because there's just because I hope it's true with no evidence. Now, that's not the faith of Christianity. The challenge for us all is to think, I'm not going to believe it in a kind of leap-in-the-dark faith. Is there reason to believe it? Can we trust in it? Are the words of the Bible reliable? Can they be verified? And one of the first things when we think about this is that, you see, when we want something to be verified, it's helpful to have it verified from external evidence as well, you see? So when you have the Bible, the Bible needs to be consistent. But are there other accounts, possibly from people who don't even align with what the Bible is saying, that indicate that it is reliable, that it is a good, consistent, um, historical document? And I reckon we've got a good reason to think that. And you also want to have confidence that those who are writing it wrote it relatively soon and that they actually have good reason to be, be accurate in what they're, uh, what they're saying. And that's what we're going to see when we, when we have a look at um, 1 Corinthians in, in a moment as well. So, here's a question for you, and I want you in your mind right now, wherever you're at, answer it and see, see what, what comes to your mind. Is there good reason to believe that the tomb was empty? You see, our whole, um, our whole series uh, this Easter was on uh, Sunday, on uh, Friday, we heard the words, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. But if he, he said, Father, forgive them, and how powerful that was. If he's still dead, those words end up being nice, but ineffective. Was the tomb empty? Some people, some people have many reasons to think no. We come up with all sorts of reasons to say why that's not the case. And secondly, are the testimonies about the tomb being empty because Jesus is back alive, are they reasonable? Are they worth trusting in? Now, throughout history, there has been lots and lots of debate about this. And in a moment... In for a few moments, I'm trying to give you a big snapshot overview uh, picture of it. As many, many theologians, many, many uh, philosophers and, and atheists and Christians have debated this time and time again. And what I hope to uh, leave you with today is the snapshot of what, what, the, what some of the arguments are. And there's two guys that I think are really helpful, that really helped me as I read all this stuff and as I had the privilege to go back and think through all this all again. Um, one, of, one of the guys' names is, some of you may have heard of them, and others think they're just mysterious to me. Um, a guy named William Lane Craig, who's a, a, an apologist who talks a lot about why we can believe in God, and he, and, he, and he talks a lot specifically about the fact that we have good reasons to think that the tomb was empty. And another guy who we're going to spend some time thinking about, and we're going to end with his story today because it is just a, it's so profound. A guy named Gary Habermas, who did a lot of work in the 80s and 90s particularly, um, talking about, can we trust that the resurrection happened? And he's an academic who's uh, transformed, really, how scholars, atheists, non-believers, and believers think about this. 
So what what is helpful about this? Well, um, some of you may have heard the more more popular guy named um, Lee Strobel, who was a journalist who wrote lots of books about whether you can trust in the Bible, the case for faith, uh, case for God, and all these kind of books that he's written. And he was a journalist who actually was, despite what some accounts said, he actually was a skeptic um, who who then went and researched it for his own personal reasons using his journalistic skills. And he interviewed people like William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas. And as he interviewed them, he discovered that he believed it and it shocked him. And so then years later, he went back and wrote all about that and it became all these books that he's written. But he wrote one called the... Oh, um, let me just go... Oh, I'll put it back here. He wrote one called... Do I go too fast? Sorry. Oh, it's not in there. It's right. Um, he wrote a book called The Case for Easter. And in The Case for Easter... He asked William Lane, William Lane Craig, why can we believe that the tomb is empty? What, why, why can we believe that? And two, two um, summaries of the argument, which are really helpful. One, that the Bible can be trusted, and one, that there is others that saying that we, we, we think that's the case. Um, now, what, what he said was, first of all, we can have confidence that what was written was written early on. Like one of the big challenges we have, sometimes people say, Jesus was here, it happened, and then, you know, hundreds of years later, that's when the writings of the Old, the New Testament were written. And so it's, there's this massive gap. And so within here, there's going to be mistakes made, there's going to be translation errors, there's going to be Chinese whispers, and you get here, and whatever happened back there, we can't have confidence in the story here. But here's the problem that um, William Lane Craig uh, um, pointed out. Christians from pretty much the next day were talking about and recording and spoke of the fact that they wholeheartedly believe and testified to Jesus dying and rising from the dead. And actually the gap is nowhere near as big as people think. In In actual fact, in regards to ancient history, all our writings about all sort of other figures like Alexander the Great and those guys, they, the gap between knowing them is so big. And then the writings for, for um, Jesus are only 20-odd years later in the earliest accounts. In that 1 Corinthians was, was a book in the Bible written 25-odd years after this had all happened. And in, in this letter, Paul the Apostle was writing about what Christians had said from day one, constantly about it. And he got to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, there's good reason to think these words that we'll read in a moment, um, these are what Christians were saying like a creed, something that they believed and reminded themselves over and over and over again. So that, that this was something that was believed from day one. And so the words from 1 Corinthians, have a look at what's said on the, on the screen there together and let's, let's uh, read them. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and to the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. These words were saying that Christians, from the moment that Jesus appeared post his death, were testifying to the fact 
that this is the heart and central moment. Everything hinges on this for Christianity. It's what was always said, what was always believed. That everything that was written in the Bible, everything that was written in the, in, in the past was about the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Now, that's, that's pretty great. And if you trust in the Bible, that's great. You can have great confidence. But if you want to challenge it, there's a good challenge, right? Yeah, that's well and good. But they said that. No one else thought that would be a really good argument to come up with. But what William Lane Craig pointed out, and there was lots of, uh, lots of um, evidence to this, is that many non-believers also recorded and accounted that people, that the tomb was empty, that he was not in the tomb. And that in, in uh, Jewish writings of the past, without going into all the names and things that will just pass over you, they actually accounted to the fact that that's what was believed and that the tomb was empty. So much so that those who didn't want to believe in it, they, ha- they came up with theories that the tomb was empty because the body was stolen. And so here we have very timely writings in the Bible that tell Christians believed in it from the beginning and those who don't believe in it have a reason not to believe it saying the tomb was empty. And so you can see how there's good reasons to have confidence that Jesus was not just rotting away somewhere. The tomb was empty. It's an extraordinary thing to consider. But that doesn't make everything, uh, fix everything up, does it? We need to consider, we need to consider more things. We need to consider whether there are actually reasons that Jesus, that Jesus actually conquered death. Did Jesus actually rise again? Well, it's good to know the tomb was empty, but did people see it? Did people see him, rather? And some, some say, well, the accounts, this is where it gets a bit furry, right? We just have to rely on people back then telling us that they saw Jesus, and that's where it ends. But when we, when we look at the, the scriptures, we see that many times the accounts of Jesus um, coming back alive are recorded to us in many different ways. And the Gospels kind of say it in different ways. Now, what might you do if, if, you, if, you, if you're, you're questioning whether the Bible is real or not at this point? What might you do if you see, oh, in Mark's Gospel, someone's kind of, Someone appeared and saw Jesus first, and then in another gospel, someone appeared Jesus. It's the, the Bible itself is contradictory, that the accounts don't line up. But the thing is, it's not contradictory at all. Um, the guy, if you were here in front of the guy that we talked about, um, the the policeman who did cold cases um, and used his cold case investigations on uh, to see if. if uh, the Bible was real and the Gospels can be recorded. He talks about the fact, what do police do when they're doing good investigations, when, they, when they're trying to get testimonies from people and they hear the accounts? What do you think they do if they have two people tell their stories and it's exactly the same? What do you, what do you reckon they do? They, they're wondering, hang on a minute, there's something fishy going on here. right? If the Bible perfectly lined up in every single account, thinking, that that. That's very bizarre. The two humans have written the same thing in exactly the same way. So that argument doesn't really stand up. But what have they written? Is there inconsistencies that can't be reconciled? That's also an important question, isn't it? 
And what and what um uh what we actually need to realize though and think about is that each gospel was written for a different context of for different people for different reasons. And maybe from the different point of views as we see it, we can see why there are these what seem like inconsistencies. So for example, sometimes they say that, that there's the account that <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> sometimes there's the account that Jesus uh, that, that they saw Jesus first of all in the night time and sometimes people saw him in the daytime. Now, that is one of the big arguments for how could this possibly be true? You can't even figure out whether it's day or night. But, but, but uh, depending on how you want to tell the story, it could be, is it, and whether you're a glass half full or, you know, half empty person, is it early in the morning or, you know, as, as, uh, as the light's rising? It depends on what you're trying to convey in the story, whether it's night or day in how you want to explain it. Mark's gospel does things a little differently. He doesn't go into all the details. He says that they're scared and frightened in a different way that the others do. And Mark really is raising urgency. But if you read Mark's gospel, it's a lot shorter and he's in a rush because he's really wanting to tell people, this happened and this happened and this happened and people got really scared. And and he's explaining what's going on and the emotions for it. And so he's writing it from a a different perspective, the same account, to shock people into realizing this is amazing. And then, if the accounts weren't reliable, here's something that's going to sound outrageous, but I'll explain it, so just hang with me. Who were the first people to see the, see the tomb was empty? It was the women. You can't believe in the women. Now, do you want to lynch me for that comment? No, you should, because it's a ridiculous thing to say, and it's, it's outrageous, okay? Let's just establish that. But... That's what the, the, the gospel, gospel writers pointed out, is that the women were the first to go and see the tomb. The, why is that important? Because the actual context back then is that you don't listen to the, to the, to the uh, women's accounts. That if that's actually what happened, that's a little bit embarrassing. And that's, if, if, if you really want people to believe it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. You'd brush that under the, under the carpet and you'd say, oh, it was the leaders, it was the men. Now, that's just blows our minds today right hopefully it blows your minds because it's just ridiculous but that was the time and so it's beautiful the way that in this account god has put women front and center you know kind of challenging all those views and highlighting to the fact that there's nothing nothing hidden here this is what happened and so here we have reasons to consider and think about that jesus did actually rise from the dead and when we think about it, we see how beautiful it is that we don't just have hope, like lotto hope. Do you ever, you know, the idea, hope's kind of one of these words that we say, and I use the word hope often as if I'm dreaming or wishing. It's not, maybe probably not going to happen. Do you ever use the word hope like that? That's often how we use it in society. But when the Bible talks about hope, what is it saying? that we can have good reason to believe in something that will happen in the future. And here we have good reason to consider that Jesus uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And Gary Habermas, who I mentioned earlier, there's this, if you, you can read, read lots of his books, but I actually just loved watching, um, there's this old YouTube clip, it goes about an hour and a half, um, of him and a really dear friend of his. 
a guy named his who's uh, passed away now named Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew. And he's a, a really well-respected philosopher and atheist. And Gary's one of his close friends, scholar, academic, uh, Christian theologian. And they have this debate. And it's like two friends just trying to not just do gotcha moments with each other, but just try and wrestle with, could this possibly be true? And it's, it's amazing how as they go through this debate, and what Gary, what Gary is pointing out to, um, to his, his friend is that all these appearances, there were so many appearances that happened that it's hard to kind of wash them away. And Jesus appeared to all sorts of different people. Uh, we're going to finish it in a bit later and hear about um, when Jesus turned up and spoke to two friends on a road. But he didn't just see individuals. There was a time when he saw 500 people at the same time. What do you do with that? All of these accounts. Well, I think I've got on the screen here, you can see. Um, here's just If you can see that there, that's all the times when it's talked about when Jesus has seen people and when he saw them and how many there was there. There is many, many different accounts of Jesus appearing. How do you do it? How do you resolve that this couldn't have happened? Some people say it's one big hallucination. People are hallucinating the, this reality, but that's kind of hard. It's actually impossible for 500 people at once to hallucinate the same thing. Uh, but some people argue and, and have done some research and science to try and try. It's just a kind of group think. As someone believes it and another person believes it, and you kind of just get onto this role that you convince each other into going forward, into thinking it's true. But the problem with that is that there was no ulterior motives. As we saw yesterday from the Gospel writers, they did not get any of the big things that you do for. They didn't get any power out of it. In fact, they got the opposite. They faced persecution. Didn't, didn't, um, there was no sexual or relationship motives. There was no power that they got out of it. Instead, we see them just pointing to the fact that in all different ways we have, re- have recorded that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's in this debate where you see um, Gary point this out and, and his friend, um, who, who can't believe it, acknowledge that that's what people thought. That's what was said. And the question for us, is that something that you can believe in? Is this something that you can trust in? See, others want to come up with alternatives. Others want to say it's just a legend. They're hallucinating. What do you think? So this is all just a loose introduction to a deep, complex, um, uh, many, many layered books and ideas to point to the fact that we can have confidence. There's external evidence and there's internal evidence to see that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. But the reality is we still do need to have it make a decision, don't we? It's not like this is um, like me, me asking you right now, do I have hands? And because oh, my hands are in my pocket, and you and you go, oh gee, I've got to make a decision on this. Do I believe it or not? You've seen me wave my hands around already. While there's good evidence to it, you still need to decide: is this something that you are going to believe in? Because of that evidence and what we see in the scriptures, and so that is where we're going to land. And it's far more important than all that discussion we've had. 
what does this actually achieve? Now, when we had our readings today, we had Luke 24, and we skipped the middle story. The middle story is, is it's a classic story because it's, it's almost bizarre how it plays out. But I think Luke, the, the writer, is trying to help us see what's happening on this road is what you all need to decide today and what I need to decide. See, in Luke 24, 13, after Jesus had died, uh, two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. You may have heard this story before. Go back and read it today in um, Luke twenty four thirteen, And they're walking away and they are so disillusioned. You can imagine, you've, you've decided to follow this guy and you've just witnessed the most barbaric death. They're heartbroken. And this other guy turns up and says, what are you talking about? He says in verse 17, uh, what are you discussing? And they just look at him like, where have you been? <laughs> are, are you serious? Are you, have you not heard what's happened in Jerusalem? They were heartbroken and couldn't believe what had taken place, that, that this person hadn't known what had taken place. But this person was Jesus and they hadn't realized that it was him. And Jesus said to them, um, that uh, he said to them in verse 25, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. And they kept walking along. Hearing all of this, but their eyes, they, they, they didn't understand and they didn't understand who was talking to them. Imagine that. And as this happened, they had a meal. Um, and when they had this meal, they were at the table and Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And at this moment, just like before his death when he was with his disciples and he broke bread and said, I am going to die and this is, this is representing my body. As he breaks the bread with these uh, two disciples, it says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, Jesus disappeared and they've gone from being disillusioned to their hearts burning and wanting to understand the scriptures more and more. See, I think Luke's written this story for us in this way to ask you, to ask anyone who reads it, if you're on that path, do you recognize Jesus? Do you recognize that he has risen from the dead? Do you recognize that there is not just a, a, a time in history where he broke physical bread, but that actually his body was given for you on the cross? And it's not a pointless thing because he conquered death for you. Where does your journey take you? See, for these two men on the road to Emmaus, that's not where they ended up. They ended up with their king in joy, now living for the hope that is to come. 
Is that your hope? Jesus didn't die again. The end account of Luke in the beginning of his second volume in Acts is Jesus rose and is still reigning and he will come back. And in light of that, where are you at? Well, I want to finish today by just letting you um, know what Gary Habermas reflected upon. When he was interviewed and asked, um, okay, Lee Strabel's asking him in the case where he said, righto, now, just say I believe it. I'm not saying I do, but just say I believe this. Gary, why does it matter? This is quite a heart-wrenching moment when... Gary records a hymn, the time when he was on his porch at home, and he's considering, it was 1995, and he's considering upstairs his wife is dying, in pain, and she's not going to survive. And he said, I recall that so many of my students, it wasn't one, it was one after the other after the other, kept on messaging me, kept on uh, letting them know, that at a time like this, aren't I glad of the resurrection? And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of nice with the smile that my students are teaching me what I've taught them all along. But yes, it is. And he recalled how as his wife is up there dying... If God came to him right at that moment and asked him a question, he said he'd have one question for his Lord. God, why does my my wife Debbie have to die? And he said, I have no doubt that what he will say to me is, um, hasn't my son died and risen And I would probably say something like, well, you may have noticed that I've staked my whole career on this, right? I've written book after book about it. I've written book after book about it. I've staked my career on it. I've taught people that absolutely it is. As if that's a good answer. And he would just come back to me and say, did my son not die and rise for you? And he'd keep saying it. Until like on that road at Emmaus, I would have Jesus in my mind in full view. You know, what worked 2,000 years ago works for me in 1995, is what he said. And it works for me this day. Not because it's an emotional crux or it just helps us get through life. But because Jesus' death conquers death. as His resurrection conquers death. And gives us life eternal. How do you respond to such glorious news this Sunday morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has died in our place and risen into all glory, that we can have life eternal with him. Father, we pray that we will live for him all our days. Amen.